Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5. I'm Ronan McAuliffe and you are listening to Radio Press. And I'm joined by a fabulous teacher here in the school who's been here for almost seven decades, Mr. Kieran Hearn. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm very, very happy to be here, Ronan. And I feel like I'm kind of, as I'm about to leave, I'm reinventing myself as a podcaster. Who would have thought? Okay, so it's really, really exciting to be here. Yeah, and what, what an amazing list of things on the menu this particular uh, episode. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And let me tell you, we have an absolutely phenomenal lineup. Cork legend Stevie G makes an appearance. There's plenty of music on this episode, as well as PBC Music Society. We'll take a dive into the, the gaming world, as well as the London Underground. Ryan Lyons brings us a piece on golf. But first off, well, Mr. O'Hearn, take us away. What's up first? Well, I'm really excited, Ronan, to see that the Presentation College Music Society is back on the road again, being led by uh, Mr. David O'Reardon, uh, a great musician himself, and keen to see the revival of music in Presentation College. Now, he's joined by Mary O'Driscoll, one of our younger staff, and that's wonderful looking to the future. And so we kick off here with Roland's interview with Dave. Up next, we have Mr. O'Reardon here to talk about the Prez Music Society, which he just recently established. So, sir, um, I guess, what's the thoughts behind it? I mean, um, I know the Prez doesn't teach music as a subject. Is that kind of the the hope that the Music Society would get the push on to have music taught as a subject? Or is it just supposed to be more of an extracurricular activity that's just fun? Yeah, hi Ronan. Yeah, I suppose the idea behind the the Music Society being set up really was that we'd facilitate the the talent that's in the school um, rather than formally kind of bring it in as a subject. I suppose I go back to my own time when I was in Prez back in the the 90s and uh, I remember coming in for lunchtime concerts. There was a number of bands in the school and... um, We'd all be brought into the Dan Donovan Theatre and uh, the concert would last a half an hour and they were great memories and it created a great, you know, a great sense of excitement um, amongst the lads involved in music and it also encouraged the younger kids in the school to, to, to also participate. What's the response from students been? Have many turned up for it? How's it going? Yeah, it's really good. Um, we've uh, we've had a really positive response. Um, a really committed group of lads have become involved, um, and not just like musicians either. Guys who want to get involved in production, helping out. Um, you know the logistics behind the scene. Um, and there are you know there's also Miss Walsh, the art teacher, and Miss Odriscoll's teacher as well, who've been helping out, which is great. Um, I think you know it's really important within the school to have this because I think it's a huge part of, a, of, of the student's identity to be able to, to come in here and maybe form a band or, you know, work on lyrics or, you know, you know also to channel their emotions and things like that. It's really, really important. And um, I think it just creates a more holistic, rounded sense of education within the school. And are there particular requirements? I mean, is, is, is there an audition that you have to go through to join? No, the only, Ronan, the only requirement is uh, enthusiasm and and love of of music and uh sharing of ideas and cr- being creative uh again i go back to my own time when i was a young a young kid here and i remember uh, we had bands like the sons of mr green jeans we had you know bob jackson who a lot of people would know he wrote a doctor sword he became a, a involved in film and writing and of course the um the well-known Killian Murphy. Um, so, I mean, it's 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 great to see the school catering for so many diverse talents, not just rugby or soccer or GA, that we have this creative 
uh, field uh, available to kids as well. You know, I, I think it's really important. And where would you see the society or the music society going from here? Would there be lunchtime performances again? Uh, would there be maybe at the Christmas concert performances? Um, what's kind of the the look for the next, I guess, two or three years? Yeah, well, I, I'd have to say that I'm more of a facilitator, and it's really that's really at the. the you know, that's really down to the kids themselves. It's a very organic entity, I think. Um, it's kind of in flux, like each week we have different ideas coming, you know. Uh, we're going to put on a concert next week, two concerts, in fact, um, where the lads are going to exhibit their talents and that'll kind of get the ball rolling, I think. But I think going forward, it's really exciting. We've got a lot of younger kids in the school who will create that sense of continuity. Um, we've got a number of six years as well who are really setting a really good example and they're really encouraging of the younger guys. So I think there's almost that kind of, it's like a kind of a sense of a peer mentoring thing going on in there as well, you know, it's really, really nice. So it, it's really exciting. Would you like to see music um, possibly set up as a fourth year module in the foreseeable future too? Well, absolutely. I mean, I know there's constraints within the, 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 the school with regards to timetabling. It's very difficult for management, but you know, if if that was uh, possible, I think it would allow us to to develop and become a bit more um, focused on performance work or working towards something great or even beyond the school or outside the school. I was actually down in Fitzgerald's Park last week and uh, uh, the Norton School were down there and um, Jack O'Rourke, the pianist and songwriter, was, was set up and he was playing the keyboard and they'd... Um, they had singers up on the stage, you know, inside the gate there on the on the, the new stage there. And it was absolutely brilliant. You know, it was just fantastic. People were stopping, taking photographs. And I just think it's really important to get out of the classroom as well for students, you know. And, you know, again, it's that idea of a broader education. You know, I think when you leave Presentation College, it's not just about a piece of paper with marks on it. I think, you know, you got to take, it's like that short thing. Educa- education is what remains when everything's been forgotten. You know, you take something else with you, good relationships and you know, forming those um, musical uh, links, I think, would be great. And I mean, that's, that's that's what it is. It's guys that are very musically talented, exploring those talents and being creative and doing whatever they want. And w- would you agree as well that there's certainly um, a positive mental health aspect to it too, you know, for, for a school that hasn't had music for so long, that for guys, they can now go and they can just be creative and they can do whatever they want. And it's not like, you know, if, if you go down to the School of Music, you're told this is your syllabus you know these are the pieces you have to learn whereas I guess they can just do whatever they want they, whatever comes to mind I think that's an absolutely brilliant question there Ronan I think you've hit the nail on the head I think there's so much value in it being non-academic non-formal in terms of uh, you know, the exam system I think when you take it away from the exam path it becomes more enjoyable more you know, a little bit more relaxed and uh, I think, as you said, emotional health, there's something cathartic about maybe writing a lyric or uh, a poem and putting music to it or just performing or a guy getting up and playing drums and there's something physical about that or, yeah, I, I think all of these things are, are necessary. We all we all have different internal things going on and for students, it's, it's a really great way for them to grow emotionally as well. Okay, perfect. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking about the Music Society. Thanks very much, Ronan. Thanks for that, Ronan. So there now we have the thoughts of the teacher. What about the students? Adam Hartley now will be chatting with Matthew Flynn and Liam Kevill about their musical interests. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Adam Hartley, a member of the Music Society here at Prez, and I'm joined by Liam Kevill and Maddie O'Flynn just to talk about the Music Society, how it came about, and I suppose where it's heading. So, Liam, how were you introduced to the Music Society? Uh, well, first I heard about it on the intercom. You know, Mr. Dunne was kind of, uh, she said, anyone who's interested in music, go to the theatre uh, after school. And I thought, oh, this is great, you know, because uh, I was always looking for some other people in the in the school to who play music, but I didn't know anyone. So it was good to, you know, um, find others uh, who had an interest in music. So I thought it was um, a great idea. So I went down and there was maybe 15 to 20 people. And that's how I uh, was interested and how I was introduced to the, the society. And uh, it was just it was handy to kind of find people who can who are playing music as well and that's why i've stuck with it as well it's it's because it's just interesting and enjoyable to okay play. yeah to find people who i guess like you can relate to somewhat and what about you maddie did you hear over the intercoms also uh yeah so i heard it over the intercom they basically just asked uh, anyone who's interested in music just come to the social area b so i went with my friend and uh, there was uh, like uh, as liam said there was like 15 to 20 people there and uh, it was just a really nice experience to uh, at our first uh, meeting just to come down and see all these people with their instruments because like I've always been really involved in music but it was kind of never in the school so I just really liked having the opportunity to play with like just people in the school and like bring music into the school. Yeah that's true I think personally like I keep music and school as two very like separate parts of my life but it's good to kind of integrate them too and you can get to know people who are in your class or in your grade or in the school even that you can just even like out of school get together and I don't know learn a song or create a band or something is that kind of what you had in mind when you were yeah yeah down? absolutely like there's there's some people in like fourth and fifth year that I just wouldn't have never spoken to before like and uh, probably wouldn't have ever sp uh, spoken to unless we had the music society like I'm good friends with them now like and we, we try to play stuff together and we have plans to like learn stuff together it's yeah it's great yeah, that's really good. I can see, and Mr. O'Reardon kind of touched on that, how it can kind of not really de-stress, but kind of get you away from the whole kind of rigid school atmosphere and kind of how back in the day it was almost a factory, but now it's a lot more relaxed and it's education in all um, like sorts of all different parts of life, I suppose. It, it can be sports, it can be music, it can be podcasting. Even as we're sitting here, you get experience that can definitely pay off later in life. So... There's um there's going to be a concert next week. Is that the only thing that's kind of planned for the foreseeable future there? Um yeah, well there's the Creative Arts Week concert uh which is inclusive of all years so anyone in the music group is going to play in that. So there'll be solo pieces and uh duets. Uh, and then there's also the 6th year graduation which is where the 6 years in the music society will play uh pieces for their year. And um, just to kind of finish off their year and kind of say goodbye, you know. And uh, for the Creative Arts Week, I think it's important for people because not many people in the school kind of think of music when they kind of think of art. They kind of think of just, you know, art as a subject. So I think it's important to kind of branch out and show those two, uh, those two concerts so people can be more aware, I suppose, of the music in school. Yeah, it'll definitely it'll definitely actually bring more people in because they kind of experience and see what's happening there. And as more people come in, I suppose it'll come more 
organized and everything and so there'll be more concerts planned and everything but i think just for the end of this year i think it's just going to be that concert there might be one more but as the numbers start to grow and the organization gets bit by bit kind of better it will grow and it'll it'll change kind of people's attitudes towards music and to school because i think like i really think prez i think kind of extracurricular straight away rugby pops to mind but it wouldn't it definitely wouldn't be harmful to have other things pop up like podcasting or music or anything like that so maddie you said earlier that you got in contact with people that you wouldn't have otherwise and you've sort of kind of been playing with them been just messing around basically with the music has that kind of how's that affected you is it nice do you meet them out of school to practice are you thinking of a band or anything like that well there's there's no certain plans for a band or anything but uh, we uh, we have a, we have a plan to meet up uh, I think this weekend or something and just uh, try something um, maybe for the concert like if, if it doesn't go too well obviously uh, I'll just uh, do the my piece for the concert solo but like if we can uh, get it all together then uh, it would be great to play uh, I think there's three of us that sounds really good hopefully that goes well and we might see you at the concert on Thursday have you got any idea what piece you're going to be playing either with the band or what solo piece you're going to be performing uh, yeah yeah I have a song it's called Peel House okay Cool house by the backseat, the backseat lovers. Okay, yeah. And what por- what piece are you performing, Liam? Uh, well, I'll be doing a duet with uh, Liam Ring, and we'll be doing uh, early sunsets over Monroeville. Adam, so you're in the music society as well. So, do you know what you're going to be doing? Yeah, I know I'll, you play piano. I'll be performing Fantasy Impromptu by Chopin, and maybe something else. Although, like, I've got to have it by heart, but. I might be able to squeeze something in by next week. Okay, if anyone's interested to join the Music Society, feel free to go to Mr. O'Reardon's room, Miss O'Driscoll's room, or Miss Walsh, or just find them around the school and give them a chat, and they'll tell you, they could add you to the teams, or they could tell you when the next meeting is, and it'll be, like, go ahead. If you if you even know someone who wants to join it, then let them know. Okay, well, thank you, Maddie, and thank you, Liam, for coming on the show today. I'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. So we say goodbye to the Presentation College Music Society with a piece from Liam Ring, Early Sunsets Over Monroeville, presented in acoustic form. Late dawns and early sunsets, just like my favourite scenes, then holding hands and life was perfect, just like up on the screen.
Thanks so much for that piece, Liam. Well, on the surface, it's Europe's biggest city, but its real secret lies underground. Sebadon who travels to the London Underground. Welcome to the London Underground, one of the world's most famous, popular and efficient transport systems. As a long-time passenger, the London Underground still holds a dear place in my heart. The transit phenomenon, better known as the Tube, was founded 159 years ago by Mark Brunel, and it managed to transport 38,000 people on its opening day. From these humble beginnings, the Tube is now 1.8 million daily passengers and 296 million passengers yearly. It has 11 lines, in other words, 11 different train routes which span 420 kilometres. My experience in the Tube mainly centred around the district line. In my opinion, one of, if not the best qualities of the Tube is how easily connected you are with the City of London. I would just stroll down to the nearest station, Parsons Green, which was about only two minutes away from my doorstep, and in an instant I would be in the middle of a bustling Oxford Circus. You pay for the underground with an Oyster card, a contactless blue smart card. It is basically England's answer to the Leap card. You simply tap it against a yellow card reader, and before you know it, you are halfway across one of the world's busiest and most infamous cities. The Tube has various positives from its convenient, fast travel to the ability to easily access all four corners of England's capital city. Waiting times for trains are rarely long, the single journey only costs 240. If you are working, going to school, or even exploring the city as a tourist, there's no better transport option out there. However, nothing is perfect, and there are a few downsides against the underground, though minor. At certain times, the trains can be incredibly busy and completely cramped. People are squeezed up against each other like sardines, and it's not an overly comfortable travelling experience. In my times on the Tube, it was the most packed on the weekends when Chelsea be playing, as I lived just minutes away from Stamford Bridge. I can still remember hordes of drunk fans belting out chants, crammed onto the train, not one square metre of room to spare. Another tiny slight against the Tube is a growing amount of crime taking place. It has grown to such a point to where warnings of pickpockets are now played over the sound systems at certain train stations where it is a big issue. In 2020, the last full year before COVID, when the stat was last recorded, there was 11,408 pickpocket cases. So tourists should be wary using the tube and keep all personal belongings in zip pockets. This is Seba Donahue with my summary of the London Underground, and thank you for listening. Please mind the gap. Thank you, Seb. That was really interesting. And now our own Owen Harrington is in conversation with Mr. Paul McSherry, a former employee of Blizzard, for a deep dive into the gaming industry. Hi, my name is Owen Harrington, and today I'll be bringing you another piece from the world of gaming. But today I'm joined by a very special guest who has worked in the gaming industry. Paul McSherry, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So, Paul, you formerly worked for Blizzard Entertainment, and for people who don't know, Blizzard is a video game developer who has created many games, including World of Warcraft, Diablo, StarCraft, and Overwatch. So, Paul, can you tell me more about how you got into this career? Well, uh, I had a long time of career in communications. I've worked in the banking industry and telecommunications industry, 
And actually, I moved back to Cork with my wife. We were setting up our lives to Cork and raise our family. And when I came back, I became aware that places were in town I actually hadn't known. And they were looking for somebody over their communications. They interviewed for the job and I got it. And I'll always remember my, my interview. I went into the visit site in North Cork City there and I went in a big suit and my shirt and tie. And I walked into a building and I think I didn't see another person wearing anything other than a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. So I cut out like a sore thumb. So could you just go into a bit more about what your role within the company was? Just At the time, there were 1,400 staff on site, many nationalities, um, so nine core languages, uh, eight which we service. My job was to try and make sure that everybody was aware of what the overall business was working for, what we try to achieve, make sure that leaders had their voices uh, easily heard, all that kind of stuff. That's how the role started out. And as it grew over time, um, I took on the kind of PR side of it as well, so that was actually promoting bigger than what we did in Cork and in Europe, actually. And then the other part of the job as well was kind of philanthropy side of it. So a lot of work around making sure that it was a good corporate citizen, you know, that we did good things in the communities we were involved in. So that was largely it over time. And then obviously the final part of my job was to help run the site itself. So I was part of the site management team. I was in the place we made sure the place was running well. That sounds like a very interesting place to work. Uh, what was your average work day like? Um, there was a few regular meetings you'd have a week, like you'd have a site leadership meeting with kind of staff liaisons. Uh, largely, my, my average day would have been making sure that anything we had scheduled either internally or the wider community was all lined up and ready to go. And a lot of, a lot of meetings really, and you did the project work, so we were always doing something new and exciting. We were always trying to enable the staff to make the site better. So a lot of the time that would involve me going into meetings with people who come up with really good ideas and trying to help them get those over the line and deliver them in a way that would work well. Um, and then there was always I, whenever there was major game releases coming out, when I was wondering, I often play testing was part of the job. I would maybe get a few hours a week to try and play the, the alpha of the game and then give our feedback to the game team to say what we thought was good and what we thought was bad. So I generally went in there as a noob and kind of said, well, I think this is good and I think that is good. But, uh, and then that feedback would go towards helping improve the game before we can save it. So that was a fun part of the job. While you were working in Blizzard, did you get much work with some of their bigger game releases and like, what was the experience with that? Even though I was a communications guy, a large part of my life was talking about, about what we were getting up to, we were still expected to be very involved in the game. The Ablox came out, a large part of my life was to understand that game and play a lot of it. So though I could speak confidently at it, it was out at any kind of an event representing Blizzard, I couldn't be there pretending I knew all about these games and I didn't. So, um, what was the process with like games being developed and then being sent out to be released, and like how much effort goes into like the work around getting them out on time? Blizzard always believed in you know, ready when it's ready. So, often meant delays in development, often meant upsetting shareholders, often meant upsetting markets. And a good example of, of where that didn't go as well was the Diablo Three release, the game that was in development for a very long time, almost fifteen years. So they were in a position to feel like it was in the right place to release it. There was major technical issues to dodge. So what would happen internally would be the game development teams would be often in their city in Irvine in California. So they'd be basically tweaking planning. These game development teams would be resourced differently depending on their life cycle. You know, we would have these um we call them show and tells and we hold them in the real cinema in Blackpool. What was in the pipeline? It was extremely confidential because it was very early development work usually, or maybe it was you had to be extremely careful about what we shared there. And then eventually the game would get this and would be ready for alpha testing. And there would be surveys that the uh, kind of working groups as well would send and discuss this. A lot of guys in, in Blizzard loved this part of the development because you got to literally contribute to the game's finished design. 
then eventually we'll go to a, a, a closed beta, which all staff would be able to participate. Uh, but then it would be open for release, and then we'd have a big launch party, be great fun. That's when our work really kicked in because, so in other words, once the game was launched, if there was any issues, the seven, eight hundred staff who worked in customer support and sites and cross sites, it was actually after launch that we got really, really busy to address any service issues. That's very interesting because a lot of people, I'd say, would assume that before the launch would be a much busier time. So, when does someone decide that the game is ready to go out and like is there a tight deadline on that being sent out and all the stuff being sent out with it? Your EA games were always very good to get their game prices out on time. It is there's a bit more of the feeling of this philosophy of if it isn't ready we don't sell it. And then you have the events like Gamescom, BlizzCon. These things are shed years in advance. Huge amounts of money spent on these events. Not only that, you will, you will already be discussing two years in advance of a BlizzCon or a Gamescom what we're going to announce Well, everything has to be lined up with the PR teams, with the, the, the art work, the big testing, all of that has to be lined up with So any kind of iteration delay, these call it, but iteration is the different versions of the game, could have a massive impact there. With how vocal some people within the gaming community can be, do you think that negative comments about a game affects the sales and how future games would do from a certain company. It can have a massive impact on, your, on, on the revenue making it. The revenue making a game usually gets reinvested either into the company or basically into future game development. That's what people don't tend to see is for every game that gets delivered, there's 10 or 12 games that never make, make it at all. You can have people spending years on projects that get canned. Uh, there's a very specific one called Titan that everybody knew about in the gaming industry that could have developed for seven years. If your game gets reviewed poorly, as we see often these days, you get review bombs because basically Maybe you've done something in the wider world that the community feels hasn't been right, um, and people just expect to do negative reviews and consequences. That has a massive impact. That's kind of why I would have expected, but it's just better to have a better understanding of it. So, just one more question before I we wrap things up here. So, um, if someone was interested in getting into a coil like this, what advice would you give to someone about this? Uh, this is the question I used to get asked a lot. So a lot, a lot of work I would do would have been kind of outreach to schools and stuff. We'd go to events. So once you decide you want to be in the gaming, it's well and good. But then you need to be realistic about it. You have to be very passionate about it. But the other thing I'll say as well is a lot of people used to come to me and ask me about getting into the gaming industry. They're very fixated in just getting into game development straight away. I want to be a game developer. Absolutely. Sure, no problem. But go away and start building games. Show us you can build a game. That proves to us that you have what it takes. Don't just come and say, I played out the games and therefore I should be a game designer or a game developer. If you want to be a game artist, go away and design characters. Go away and render those in CD if you really want to. Be aware that there are plenty of careers in gaming that don't necessarily have to be in development. You might work in the finance department. You might work in communications like I did. You know, so this, you don't, there are many, many routes in it. But you have to keep trying. You have to believe that you're going to achieve it and you have to work hard. That would be my advice. That's very good advice, I think, anyway. So um, that's all the questions I have. But before you go, I'd like to take time to thank you for coming onto the show and sharing all your knowledge today. And I wish you all your best in your new coil with Coyle's Opticians. So thanks, Paul. Thank you. Watch out. It's our golf expert, Ryan Lines, Or should I say, four... Hi, I'm Ryan Lyons and today I'm going to be talking about my time on the golf course and how I got into golf. I joined my first golf club at the age of 12. Previous to that, I'd been playing from time to time with my dad in Douglas. Since I've joined the golf club, I have loved being there. 
I got my first handicap at the age of 28 and over the years I've been gradually getting lower and improved with practice and help from other people around the golf club. When I first joined Blarney in 2018 I was nervous because I thought a lot of people would be a lot better than me and it would take me a lot of time to get as good as other people. I learned over the years that it's about having fun and being able to enjoy the game. You always play your best golf that way. I have represented Blarney in many team events over the last couple of years and the teams have been improving each year. Playing these different tournaments on different courses has helped me a lot on being able to play from different distances and many different conditions. Over the last year, I've started playing in bigger tournaments and competitions, which has helped me to see how good the best players are at my age, and it has helped my game playing with better players around Ireland. I joined Douglas at the start of 2022, as my dad was a member up in Douglas, and there was better opportunity for juniors up in Douglas and better players. I was also quite friendly with a good few of them, as they were in my class in school, so I knew that a lot of people going up there. Well, I'd probably practice four or five days a week. I'd also go down to Fota with the Munster Under-17 coaching, so I'd get a lot of help from them. And um, there's very good facilities down there, so I'd be able to play on faster greens, which would be similar to different tournaments, which would give me a lot better judge on how to gauge how fast the greens would be. And I also get lessons outside of... uh, the Munster coaching, which would be uh, up in Mallow, so I'd go there maybe once every two weeks. So usually when I'd be practising, I'd start off hitting a few wedge shots um, to around 100 yards, and then I'd hit a good few iron shots, and then I'd move on to the driver once. Uh, everything's going pretty well. Um, I'd usually go up to the driving range in, in Ascara, as I think it's the best judge for how far I'm hitting the ball, and how accurate I'm hitting the ball. Even though golf is a a slow-moving game on the course, you still have to keep relatively fit to be able to keep up with the other players and hit the ball as long as they do. Well, I do a lot of strength and conditioning. Um, We'd usually go to Peter O'Keefe up in Douglas who would uh, help us with our strength and conditioning and it would keep us up to speed with all the other players outside of who I'm competing against. I got picked for the... Monster team at the end of 2021 based on the tournaments during the year so there were seven players got picked all around Monsters. We'd get coaching once every three weeks down in Fota and then we'd usually play matches against different provinces as well. I'd prefer playing tournaments like singles but I also like the team events as well because I'd be friendly with people there's a good atmosphere around the place. We'd usually go down at 10 o'clock in the morning and we'd be there till 4 o'clock, so we'd do a bit of practice on the range in the morning. Then we'd go down to the potting and chipping greens and then we'd usually go out and play nine holes out in the course and we'd get coached as we're going around. The coaches are brilliant down there. They're very helpful and they're really experienced. They've been both coaching for around 30 years, which helps me a lot with different aspects of my game and... I always try to follow what they do as they have the best gauge for what I should be doing and what I need to improve. I have a good few tournaments coming up in in and around June, July and August so I'm kind of just at the moment just preparing for them and doing a good bit of practice to 
try and be up to my best golf by then. The first one is on up in County Down, so it's a long enough drive away, but it'll be all the worth it if it goes to plan. So there'll be a lot of different players up there. All the fellas from the the Munster Under-17 team will be up there, and there'll be a lot of Irish players and different players from all around Ireland. So it's going to be probably the best players all around Ireland, which will give me a good gauge to how well I'm playing at the time. I'm hoping at the end of six year that I'll get a scholarship to America, which will give me a great chance over there to meet new people from all around the world. And it'll help me a lot as the players over there are brilliant. I also know a good few players who went over there and have said it's brilliant over there that they learn a load and they meet new friends. So I'd love to give it a go if I got the chance. My hopes for my golf career would be that I would get the scholarship over to America and then maybe to progress after that to get a chance to compete in bigger tournaments after that and I'd learn a lot and meet new people and hopefully I'd get a few tips off them as well. It would be a big dream, obviously, to wear a Ryder Cup jacket, but that's a huge expectation. I'd just love to get out of school and move from there. So to conclude, I'm Ryan Lyons and thanks for listening to my piece on golf. Ever dreamed of hanging out with Kanye West or opening for Jay-Z? Well, our local legend, the renowned DJ Stevie G has done all that and more. Have a listen. So now I'm joined by a very special, renowned DJ, journalist, radio presenter, music promoter, youth worker, and obviously, most importantly, a former press student, CVG. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, thank, thanks very much for coming in. No problem, anytime. So look, you're a man of many talents and you've had a really colourful career. So do you want to tell me a bit about how it started? Yeah, well, I would have went to school here back in the day, uh, as you mentioned, and I would have, it was the time in secondary school where I really um, just got mad into music. I actually happened in primary school, and I remembered at the moment, because I was obsessed um, as a boy with soccer, and I still am, but I remember the moment where it kind of literally turned overnight that music became my, my extra obsession, and it even took over from the football for a while. Um, but I, I still, I still like that as well. And I was just like in secondary school then, like it's so long ago. It was just a case of like, um, your social media at the time would have been cassette tapes. It's, it's like you're just passing them around, making mixtapes. And even though, like, obviously, Prez would be known as being an academic school, a rugby school, there was always different sort of se- segments of 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 kind of people in there. And I would have been friendly with most people, but there were certain people who would have been kind of would have been known as more music kind of heads and it's funny because the music at the time whenever it was late 80s early 90s it would have been we were harking back to a lot of the music that was a decade previously almost and that's a natural thing that happens so for example kids these days even your age some of them would be into you'd see Nirvana tops around the place a lot and to be even even some of the rap that I would have been DJing back in the day like Biggie and Tupac you see all these people and I'm even working with lots of teenagers at the moment and, and I'm asking them what they're into and they're like oh we're into Dre, we're into Eminem and all this stuff so it's a natural thing for people to kind of almost hark back 
So that would have been what happened to me. It was just mad into music. And there was a teacher here who ironically is my next door neighbor at the moment. Uh, he lives, he lives next door to me in Ballinlock. He was an English teacher. And when I was doing some writing, uh, on a creative front, he could have encouraged, he, he encouraged that because I was writing about, uh, for essays. I was writing about music and stuff. And he encouraged, he said, Oh, maybe you should explore some of that in college. When I went to college, then I just did English and history. I was with a view to to being a writer, and I kind of fell into DJing by accident when I was in college. Then, and that just ended up kind of just being the kind of road I travelled, which led to everything else: the uh, radio, um, some festival stuff, even putting on shows, running a venue. Like you, eventually, if you're a DJ, you also kind of go, "Hang on, I can do something like this. I can I can make this beat myself." Or I can do, I've got some ideas on the creative front. So just led to to many different avenues, but it's all, all true, just loving music. And like, while well, lots of teenagers just falling in love with that and finding it, finding your kind of place in it, you know? You said there that some of your inspirations were, as an example from your time, Tupac, Biggie Smalls. You know, I take it that they were some of your biggest inspirations. You know, do you want to tell us about any more you had at the time? Yeah, well, later as the DJ... I was around when all these people were kind of establishing themselves. So that was the 90s. So my main ones, to be honest, would have been, uh, there was a group in New York called a Tribe Called Quest. There was a group called De La Soul. They were all, they weren't much older than me, to be honest. So we would have been, if I was 18 at the time, these guys would have been 21, 22. And like when I mentioned earlier that sometimes when you're younger, you go down to music, like people were into music from, say 20 years previously uh like whatever whatever the music would have been like the youngsters today who are listening to that stuff from the 90s when 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 music came out it was my generation it really kind of like kind of i don't know just there was something about it that you felt that you were living in the now rather than just going back and that was what when it became really exciting for me so there was a big kind of music style immersion in the united states at the time and i i went over there when i was in college uh, during my J1 so you go over there for the summer working and um, hip hop was becoming a bit too kind of like gangsterish for me it just didn't suit like it, it wasn't the life I was living here you know what I mean this is Cork uh, so as much as I liked all that kind of side of it the, it was a bit of Hollywood it's like watching a, a Hollywood movie in a way it was just like but there was lots of other people talking about stuff that was more relevant um, so a tribe called Quest de la Soul and loads of loads of women like Mary J. Blige was very young at the time she started. And then there was a couple of other um, people emerged from, even though they were singers, they had more of a hip-hop aesthetic. Even though Lauren Hill, she was a rapper as well. She she is a rapper as well. Uh, Lauren Hill uh, from the Fugees and also Erica Badu, people like that. Jill Scott, she was like a poet. So that was much more what I was into and the sound I kind of developed here. Because I was DJing to people on the radio here and in clubs. So you could kind of... Um, in a way, it's kind of a position that you can influence what people are into here. And I was working in a little record shop here as well. And so at the young people who would come in, I will be giving them recommendations. So that was kind of the, the kind of the sort of sound I developed was very much hip hop, R&B, uh, quite soulful. And then once you get into that, you go back to the old school, the, the stuff that was originated that like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, people like that, Aretha Franklin. So everything really like I said earlier, it's just one thing leads to another and it's just, that's the interesting thing about anything, whether it's anything like music or art or writing or anything. 
one thing will just lead you down a different avenue into to a different space. Well, one of the last questions I have about kind of your early career was, you know, when did you like know that you wanted to be a DJ? Like, and yeah. you know, were there ever points where you felt like you were going to quit or, you know, where it wasn't going to work? Yeah, good question. Actually, the, the points when it wasn't going to work were actually more recent when I was really established. So that's quite interesting to me. Uh, and I actually, even in the worst times, we'll say during the pandemic, and even when I ran a venue there about 10 years ago and like success, it wasn't a great financial success in the end. The recession just started when, when we opened. And at the, at the lowest times, I always would look at, so I was looking around at, um, I remember reading about Quincy Jones, who's like, I think he's actually, he's still alive. He's about 90 and he produced like Michael Jackson. He worked with Frank Sinatra and all these guys. And I remember reading that he had like, now he was the big deal. Like he was biggest producer in the world, probably one of the greatest producers of all time. And I remember reading that he brought like um, a, an orchestra to Europe in the whatever year it was, like 60, 70 years ago. And even though he was the biggest thing going, he brought like 40 or 50 people to Europe on tour, ended up going broke. And he'd f- f- fallen down, lost everything, came back. Same happened Frank Sinatra a couple of times in his career. So it's just like, you know, if, if something's your passion, you just have to kind of stick with it. Now, my wife might have had arguments on it, but there was there was one or two times when it didn't really make sense. Um, so I have pivoted towards more uh, teaching in the last few years because I don't want to be reliant because it's not only like the pandemic. There are other things that you're at. I don't know how many times when we're at the kind of um, at the mercy of the gods will say, there's loads of reasons why venues can close down, why nights don't happen, why you're, there's there's loads of different elements. So it can be tricky relying on on, on nighttime work. Uh, but I would have known that to answer your original question. There was when I was in America that year. I just I was just still in college, and uh, I just started DJing here, uh, just pretty much when I left school, and uh, I just got a residency in in the main club in Cork or Henry's at the time. And I went, I had already planned to go to America with all my buddies for the summer. And I it really influenced me being over there. But when I was over there, I couldn't DJ because all my stuff was here. And I was nobody over there. And uh, I remember thinking that, like, geez, when I go back now, I, I've already started my career. But it's going to be, uh, I'll be forgotten about and all this kind of stuff. So I remember thinking over there. This is just, uh, it meant everything to me. And I missed it so much that when I came back, I was, I was never gonna, never gonna let it go kind of thing. So I just started like, um, just traveling all over, uh, and doing it and just doing everything I could to make, to make it happen. Cause it's what I liked and still, still is like, so that was it. Well, you know, before I kind of move on to some of your more current kind of DJ projects and stuff, mm. I wanted to ask you a bit about. Some of the more community stuff you do, like the stuff in the Cork Life Centre and Everybody yeah. Dance, you know, what kind of inspired yeah. you to get those going? Yeah, the Cork Life Centre, that just happened um, last year, actually, and I'm actually going up there now. We're doing a podcast with the with some of the, the guys up there. I, I like the ethos of it because like, I, I went here to a conventional school from a pretty much privileged background in a way, in some ways, uh, but most schools would be in Cork and there's... Like the education system, as as good as it is, there are certain people aren't going to fit into it. And in the Cork Life Centre, they take a different kind of approach almost. So lots of people sort of fall through the, the actual system. So as as much as a, a school system works for me and my kids are really settled in their schools, there's some people, just doesn't work for them. Cork Life Centre have a kind of a different approach. 
And lots of the approach that we do with them comes from the students. So we went up and asked them last, when I met them in September, I think it was, said, what do you, what annoys you? So I did a podcast project with them about them being teenagers and stuff and stuff that frustrates them because it's like these podcasts, and that's why it's good even talking to you. These podcasts are always like people my age and they're always men and they're always like people talking about whatever, but like it's the younger generation aren't, they need to be, we need to hear their voices. Because even when we're talking about whether it's housing, whether it's any of the social problems that are going on now, whether it's anything, everyone's just like, it's all these like 40 and 50 year olds and 30 year olds talking, blah, blah, blah. But it's the younger people who are the ones suffering from this. Like, like I even, my, myself and my wife, we got a house, you know what I mean? Back in, back in the day, whenever, well, just around the time we got married and like, it was even hard for me then as a DJ, not like having a kind of a, even though I was working full time in Red FM at the time and I managed to like get the mortgage, but like there's people now with like even proper jobs that can't even like get into this whole, it's even hard to rent like so. And it's the younger generation are really going to be uh, suffering from, from the, the mistakes of the older ones. So that's what the Cork Life Centre is about. Everybody dance was born out of frustration. So I was doing loads of projects with groups with additional needs, people on the autism spectrum, different learning difficulties, including some one-on-one projects, which I still do with a couple of people. But with the bigger groups, I noticed that, like, out of all the things that were left for, left in the dust during the start of the pandemic, these groups and and it's quite topical at the moment because lots of them have marched in Cork last this this time last week pretty much last Friday they um they marched because the the services have been basically taken from so anyone like I know what it's like having kids or whatever but like I don't my kids haven't got additional needs and I think for the parents and carers or anyone involved in people with that it's just so hard and I was always doing parties. Uh, in certain groups like down in Clonakilty in the co-action I did a party um, with this guy called uh, DJ Jerry from McCroom uh, so his dad asked me to come and do a party with him that we ran in the kino a few years ago we did a few of them now this guy had a brain injury when he was born and he, he was told he wasn't even going to like survive and his dad was one of these per- people who was like no this, is, this isn't going to be like this and uh, the kid responded to music even though he's he's quite a heavily um kind of almost disability i suppose if you want to call it that and he became a dj and he's been running parties himself so i was doing stuff with him and i decided during the pandemic when i was bored to set up this thing called everybody dance about inclusivity which a lot of people talk about but the dance floor and nightclubs are all everyone's like hey everyone's the same we're all partying we're listening to music but i find sometimes that that's just almost talk for example, so there's lots of people who can't for f- physical reasons. There could be sensory reasons why people can't go. And I just think the music is a way of um, breaking barriers. So all the spaces here seem to be about like, you have to be over 18, you have to drink, you have to do this. And even sports, like everything is sponsored by drink companies, all the music festivals I play at. Everything is alcohol in Ireland and it's about, you can't do this till you're over 18. Then when you're over 18, it's almost like, oh, you can do anything you want. So I wanted to take out all all of all of this kind of like the alcohol side of it and the age side of it. So we did a party which was all ages and for all people. So Marina Market luckily have a big warehouse. So there's a lack of spaces in Cork for teenagers, but also for younger people or for anyone all ages who don't want to go to something that's like a pub 
we just started running these big parties for everyone, literally. So it could be if if someone was in a wheelchair, they could go there with their friends, or if someone um different disabilities, it's just a good space. And we just literally DJ myself, that guy Jerry who I mentioned, and another kid that I've been training in Toker, uh, Omo. So we we did a few parties so far, and we're going to do some more. So yeah, I just I just want to get more awareness on on that sort of subject because I'm not an expert, and all I do is the music. But uh, I do think it's something that um, it'd be cool. Like, I tried to get it even funded and stuff, but we ended up just doing a voluntary in the end because my attitude is, like, it doesn't take much for me to just go in and play some tunes, you know what I mean? And hopefully when we get more publicity, uh, someone will take it and some of the kind of um, people who are involved in funding and stuff like that. It's good fun too, which is the main thing. Yeah, well, it's definitely a really good idea, you know. And obviously it's great that people who might not be able to normally attend normal nightclubs can go somewhere where you know they can just enjoy themselves for a while you know don't have to feel the pressure of alcohol the yeah. loud noises you know it's it's a great idea even for the carers like because for the kids themselves and lots of them are adults too but like the carers they need a break too like and I work with Down Syndrome Centre in Cork as well and like it's just extra care like these people have to do lots more than a, than a, an average parent like me have to do has to do so I just think it gives them a bit of a break too or their brothers and sisters or whoever else well anyway now to move on to a few of your more current day projects anyway so I know this year uh, Black and Red is turning page yeah, 20 that? yeah 20 oh god man I feel old now so we're doing actually a project to celebrate I did a couple of mixes in January to celebrate 20 years of Black on Red and I have another project now which the BAI um, the Broadcasting Association of Ireland I guess um, so they, we got we got a bit of funding to do a, a kind of a Black on Red Presents so I'm going to present 10 different voices that are mostly from we'll say marginalised backgrounds but not all and it's 10 different artists that I've been now at the time when I put in the submission it was about 2 years ago I would have I might have even picked different artists now because the, the music moves so fast. But I've got 10 really good artists that I'm proud of. A couple of them are from Cork, King Coco, Minnie Marley. There's a couple of them from around the country, Zini Summers, uh, Tamiki. Um, I think JLOL is going to be there, Jafaris, who's one of Ireland's foremost rappers. So I will be getting these people to do a segment on them. We'll have a little chat like what we're doing. They'll come in and do some tunes in Red FM and we'll just package it up, do a kind of a celebration. But yeah, so radio's great. You know, it's like um, when I was younger, it was, um, I started in pirate radio in the 90s. It was like, again, at the time, it was a kind of a, almost like a kind of like an underground sort of style um, of like, there's a bit more choice now and people of their own, people, uh, the younger people have created their own lane now, their own channels so, like, YouTube is only probably 15 years old. Uh, MySpace was around for a while, SoundCloud. And there's lots of different, like, obviously all the social media, people can create their own channels now on Instagram or whatever. And sometimes I even use some of these channels myself. Uh, so you, you don't even need a media organization almost anymore. And podcasting is the perfect example. So it empowers people. But it's, I've always wanted, like, I did my time on Pirate Radio and it was good. You're broadcasting to Cork and we had a lot of listeners, but I always wanted to take the message uh, wider. So Red FM was perfect. I had an opportunity at the time to go to One Extra in London, which is really good uh, subsidiary. It's like the black music station of, of BBC. But uh, I just wanted to do it here because uh, I prefer, 
I prefer like Cork. There's there's probably like a lot of people doing what I was doing in London, um, and I just felt that like I had to be the person to do it in Cork. And over that twenty years, then we've seen a lot of changes in Ireland. So black on red is effectively black music, uh, which has always been there's always been like people from different backgrounds involved in black music, but that's where the music came from. Some of them could be white people like Rick Rubin who produced the Beastie Boys and Johnny Cash and all that at the Beastie Boys themselves. But it's the music is it's important to note where it came from and even Slim Shady and all these guys have always acknowledged where it did come from. So that's why I wanted to use the black on red thing and to talk about the roots of it. Now, I've interviewed a lot of these original people from... Some of them are, are gone now because lots of them were were really old at the time. But over the 20 years, I've, I've been lucky to have, like, Niall Rogers from Chic, who's back in Cork this summer, but he's who I took the Everybody Dance uh, slogan from. We had we had Kanye in Cork, but we didn't have him in the show. But we had a lot of, um, lot of like, all the great hip-hop artists, Grandmaster Flash, all these people... Uh, but just as importantly, lots of the Irish artists, um, the ones who are emerging now, and some of them are even getting mainstream success. Like Denise Chyla, she's a good friend of mine. She was down uh, supporting Ed Sheeran on the tour at the moment, and uh, people like that. So it's great to have the the new emerging artists, and particularly from uh, a migrant background, because that's, that's what's changed in Ireland over the 20 years. There's new voices from new communities and Black on Red is a kind of a good way of showcasing it. You mentioned there about bringing Kanye West to Cork and stuff, and mm. that kind of brings me to my next question about, you know, doing openings for different artists like mm. um, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Mass yeah. Attack. You know, I wanted to ask you a bit about that, because sure, yeah. opening for artists like that must have been an absolutely yeah. amazing experience. Yeah, it's great. In fairness, especially Aiken and MCD, the big promoters here, like, they used to have me as their their opening guy, so I'd open for Sheik and Jay Z, Kanye, Fifty Cent, all these people in the marquee. And he ended up coming to our club. Then it was the second time he'd come over, and and he just someone someone. It was actually Peter Stringer's uh, wife Debbie, who I used to work with in Red FM. She rang me, and she knew someone in the Sony, and they said, "Look, is there an after party?" I I was running the venue, the Pav at the time. And I said, yeah, we've got a party. And they were saying, look, Kanye might be coming around. And I said, what? <laughs> so, like, even though I'd warmed up for him, I hadn't even met him. And then that night, we arranged for him to come to the club. Now, I didn't tell anyone because there would have been 20,000 people outside the club and it wasn't going to be, we weren't going to be ready for that. And also, I would have looked like a fool if he didn't come. I was doing the warm-up and I, I went back into town then. And at 11, like, five big like black SUVs pulled up in Patrick Street and they told me to, that he'd be in the third one and sure enough and he was tiny like I just went up and brought him into the club got him a drink and, but he was really nice he wasn't like his public persona at the to- at all really nice guy and I just let him be then I just got a, a really terrible picture and I, I let him be and he was super nice and he got on stage then he did a couple of tracks Kid Cudi was with him and Kid Cudi's big artist as well like he was just emerging uh, yeah, that was cool. Um, I did some great ones in, in Dublin as well, particularly in um, with Destiny's Child and Beyonce and stuff. Uh, and they were just starting. She was only 19. And she was already, like, brilliant. Like, But it was just, like, the crowd was all like, 12-year-old girls. But it was a mad atmosphere. Like, it was, like, six or 7,000 people just screaming. You couldn't even hear the, the mix. But it was good fun. And, like, I usually, when I see these people, I just usually leave them off. 
I might get a get them to sign a record or get a photo and then I just kind of just leave them to their own devices and don't deny them. And most of the ones that we bring over then kind of respect you more. Like Niall Rogers from Chic was so nice with his time. One time I was interviewing him and I was on radio and he was traveling through Ireland on a bus and the reception went and I was like, oh no, we're just on a killer interview here. And uh, he he went out of his way to to get back and he made about three or four calls to get me back so because he, he he had in the contact or whatever and and then the following day he arrived in Cork and he came out like he was in the hotel just chilling out and this guy's like probably 70 now he doesn't have to do this he's worked with everyone like Madonna all these people over the years and he actually um he said look can we go to the radio station and we do it in person and he came out with me and did a one-on-one for an hour and met everyone signed loads of records and it was cool like it I always think that's pretty cool when when and people make the effort but it, but DJing is the best fun man still like just playing music in front of people is the best buzz it's definitely even radio is good but like you're looking at a wall but when you see people it's the best it's what I love still you know it's great to hear that even after 20 years of this stuff it never gets old look I'm afraid we're gonna have to finish up soon so I'm gonna ask you one more thing before we do and that's you know Someone my age who maybe wants to pursue a career in music, do you have any advice that you give to us? Yeah, the best advice I would say is just find your own lane, like find what you like. And I remember there's loads of times when people were like, oh, what are you playing that like girly music for? Or what are you playing this for? And I, I actually, even to make the mistakes, like I still clear the floor almost on purpose sometimes because I know there's a certain st- sort of style of music that I like myself and it kind of, kind of could be more challenging. But if it's what you are into, sometimes it's actually good to to stick to your own guns, find your own kind of like vibe, what you're into. But it has to be what you are into. Like keep the relationships going and just respect people, I think, is the main thing. And it's great fun then. Look, Stevie, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and I can't thank you enough for coming back to the school for this today. You know, it was it was really great speaking to yeah, you. Yeah, great questions. I enjoyed it. And thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Stevie. Well, with that, we will be shutting off the mics for yet another season of Radio Preds. Over the three months of the summer, the microphones will be gathering dust, but another chapter truly is ending. The book is closing on the career of Mr. Kieran Hearn here in Prez. Um, it spanned over seven decades. Sir, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. But Delighted to be here. I've got to ask you, I mean, from Broadway to the West End, to Northern Ireland and Scotland, all over the world... What's been your favourite moment in Prez? And I know that must be tough to narrow it down, but... Yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's like just the present moment, Ronan. It's new beginnings are always the exciting thing. And I suppose the most exciting new beginning, I came into Prez as a teacher in 1979 and we moved to the present building in 1985 and we built a fully equipped TV studio, drama studio and theatre with, you know, all of the, the, the facilities. And it was absolutely unique in the country at the time and was a kind of a, a revolutionary step in education. And I suppose that was, as we began that journey, that probably was my most exciting moment in Prez. And where did that journey go? I mean, like the TV studio isn't used at the moment, but what sort of things would you have been doing back then? Well, in the, in the studio, we would literally have, say, a group of students. We ran it on a co-curricular basis, so they were, the rest of the class were in class, and they were in the TV studio. So we interviewed people, 
in the studio we took vox pop from the street and so forth and we edited that together and then through a kind of a a wire link to classrooms we we showed the week's work each friday morning at 11 so it was um yeah it was it was it was really unusual and then obviously those who became very involved in it would be working after school with me we'd be filming and editing various different projects uh, as well as that i was doing the school play uh, running drama workshops in the in the, in the in the drama studio so it was a very full and active time at that stage and i suppose I was also running a, a theatre company with friends of mine um, outside of Prez, and there came a point in the early 90s when it just became a, a shootout between the work in Prez and the work in the theatre. So that's that's when I uh, took the break. And you've certainly been all over the world, um, as I've said before, but how did that start, and how did you most importantly balance that with teaching in Prez? Well, eventually... But the truth is probably not very well. It became, as I said, you know, I was literally working here till 10 o'clock at night, going home and coming back into work in the morning, then rehearsing, uh, you know, leaving here and going straight to rehearsals or e- either outside of the school or within the school. So it just became... Um, it sort of became too much in the end, Ronan. That's the the truth. I, I balanced it well enough when I was younger, but then as the demands of the work outside became greater, I was getting a bit of film work, and you know, it just became very difficult to to, to match it with teaching. So I, initially, I took a career break for five years with the full intention of coming back, and then finally, I was in a show in London, and it was it was going very well with the renowned Irish actor Dolan McCann uh, uh, Sebastian Barry's first play and uh, it was going very well and I had to make up my mind after five years and I decided to go with the acting for another while yeah Right and so then how did you come back (laughs) was was there always some sort of draw to come back I think there probably was in truth I mean it was always in touch with the place Uh, I I, I kept the connection and I I suppose I was a bit saddened that various activities began to shut down. The TV studio was used less and less. Same with the drama end of things. And then in my own life, my 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 um, eldest son was diagnosed with autism as an adult. No, it didn't like he. It was discovered when he was an adult, if you like. So he was going through a tough time. So me being away in New York, me being away in London, me being away across Europe or whatever, just didn't work for the family. So I came back uh, to do a play. In Prez, I happened to be in Cork, and they asked me to do a production of uh, Juno and the Paycock in two thousand and five, and then an opening came up for for a teaching job in the school, and I, I jumped at it. What was your passion in acting? I mean, look, there are things that we all enjoy doing. There are things that we all have fun doing, and we enjoy it because of the people there. But was there something more to it? Was there something that? you found that there was just some sort of a connection, I guess, or did it help you, did did acting help you through times where, you know, times that were tough, times where your mental health might have been at relatively low points? And also, you know, would the people there have been another factor? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, they say that acting is the shy person's revenge, that actually you're shy in every other part of your life. And that for some reason, when you're acting, you become somebody else. And it, it's not so much that you become somebody else to run away from who you are, but maybe to find yourself in a weird kind of a way. And it's very hard to explain, Roland. If you ask me, where would I be at my safest? 
at my most comfortable. Not the moment before I go on stage, but the the moment when I'm on stage, there's such... It's hard to explain. You think, well, you're so exposed. People are looking at you. You might get your lines wrong. It just, it's completely counterintuitive. But that's me at my calmest. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's weird to think about it because you, you'd think that, okay, me in my safest, most comfortable place would be away from the audience. Yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't be in front of a crowd of 10,000 people. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've guess I've had that feeling before whenever I've done debating that when you're up in front of a crowd of people and you really get in the groove, you get in the zone. I think it's I think it's something you have to experience yourself before you can kind of understand it. But I think that's I, I think that's something really powerful. And you know, it's I think it's incredible that you found that sort of comfort in acting and that being on stage was something that it just really brought out the best in you. But, well, it's yeah. interesting you, you mentioned debating. That was my first performance uh, activity in Prez. And then Brother Jerome uh, introduced drama, and I probably was more drawn to that. I didn't maybe quite find quite the same comfort as you would find in debating, but it's exactly the same space. It's when you're up there and you're on your centre, you actually feel very at home. And yeah. people who don't... Uh, who don't like to be looked at or seen by many people think that's weird. If I had to stand up and make a speech about myself, I'd always be a bit awkward. But being up there, being somebody else, was always a wonderful thing. And as an actor, I mean, were you more of an improv actor or would you have had to learn everything straight off, have every line perfect and look in the mirror 10,000 times before you go on stage? Yeah, it's, it's funny, lots of people uh, talk about... Um, the distinction between the improv style and the learning style, they're actually the same thing. You're always improving when you're up there. But yes, I would have been a meticulous preparer. I would have prepared everything, used the mirror, learned things, things to the nth degree. But actually, in the moment of doing it, you're kind of always improving. That's acting at its best. And what have you taken from acting? I, I, Of course, it's a cliche thing. But of course, as you go through life, you pick up new skills, you meet new people. And... Um, but what would you have taken specifically from acting into school? Because I like I, I know my religion classes with you are absolutely brilliant. But um, <laughs> what what would you what have you brought to teaching with uh, well, what I, you've learned through I acting? I suppose there's a, there's an there's basically in both you need I think a strange kind of honesty. Yes, you're playing somebody else. You could argue on stage. Yes, maybe even you're playing a teacher when you're in the classroom. There's a performance element to it, but openness and honesty and genuine connection with your audience, obviously it's slightly different in the classroom, is an incredibly important thing. And I would say that's what what, what connects the two. And it's I've, I've never made a huge distinction between the two. I've enjoyed both, uh, and I've absolutely loved my teaching years, and I will miss them. What poet would you say you relate with the most? I mean, for me it would be Emily Dickinson, really. I, like She is by far my favourite poet um, out of any of the ones in the Leaving Cert course. Now sure. I know my poetic knowledge is fairly limited in, the, in that sense. It's just, you know, whatever's on the curriculum. But have, did you find any meaning in poetry as well? I suppose uh, probably the greatest poet for me would still be um, Shakespeare. The Shakespeare sonnets, I just think they're, they can be read as very kind of narrow formulaic things, but it's the kind of truth 
that rings out over the centuries, that still the issue of passing of time, still the issue of seeking love and seeking connection with other human beings, he just brings it to life uh, in, in a wonderful way. I remember Dan Donovan, you saw us talk about what oft was said, but ne'er so well expressed. I think Shakespeare expresses things astonishingly. Probably in the Irish poets, Yeats would have an awful lot to say about obviously the experience of life, but also the um, the the experience of, 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 of Irishness. But if, if only you should say Dickinson, she would be way up there for me. I, I, I think it's um, a, a very deep question in one sense. Like, do you think humans have changed at all? Do, do, do you think that there is anything... Okay, of course, to a degree, morality changes slightly, but fundamentally, do you think people have changed? No, I don't. I don't. That's a really interesting question. I think the, and in, in a sense, that's probably what gives returning to older literature such um, a perennial fascination that you are seeing yourself in the mirror of history. Yeah, because, of I, time. because I think it's really funny because, um, you know, whenever I, I talk to my sister about a variety of things, she'd be like, oh, well, you know, granny and granddad this, you know, Asher, they don't have a clue about technology, they don't have a clue about this. And, yeah. And I presume they would have said the same about their grandparents. It, it's it's fascinating in a way that in a world without technology, in a world that is just not globalised in the way our world is, in a world that is so, so vastly different, people are so, so similar that things just have not changed in over a millennium. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And, and you, you'll find when you're younger, the differences in attitudes with regard to use of technology and things like that become incredibly important. But as you get older, I think the essential things become more important. And, you know, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, it does come down to love and connection with other human beings. It does come down to compassion. It does come down, I mean, to understand people who are very different from you. When you're younger, you delight in how different you are or your generation is. But it's, it, I think the basic things do stay the same. It's scary. And of course, you know, we've had our deep theological conversations in religion, but do you think there's something deeper there? Well, I think there is. I, I think I couldn't name it or shape it or be confident in in the certainty of any of the versions that are there. I would know them all. I would have. I, I find religion fascinating. I find philosophy fascinating. I I find looking at the ideologies that kind of underpin our lives fascinating. But as always, it's the questions that are more, that are more important than the answers. And of course, then going back to poetry, going back to scripts, going back to analysing them. Where did it become for you more than just a script? I think there's, obviously, look, you can do your Leaving Cert course, you can be told, all right, analyse this. This is alliteration, this is assonance in your poem, this is whatever else. Um, this is what this character is feeling, this is what, um, in, in in Macbeth, this is the, you know, the, the experiences, the emotions that he's feeling, this is why he makes this decision. But it can be sort of fed to you in a way. Yes. Where, when or where or how did it click at all when you're going through a script or going through a poem that you went, there's something more to that? I think it's when you first encounter a well-told story that you start to live. You kind of forget that it's a story. And oddly enough, it happened for me in a story, a novel. A lot of people would find it 
you know, not a particularly elevated novel, but I thought it was one of the funniest and most extraordinary experiences I ever had was doing Huckleberry Finn for uh, what was the intercert then, the junior cert. And it was just, even in spite of it being a school text, I was on the Mississippi. I was on that adventure. I was facing racism, even though I didn't know what it was. So that once you once have the experience of being taken over by a poem, a story, a movie, whatever, once you have the experience of living within somebody else's imaginative world and it's real for you, I think then all the clever things like how the story is told, why Steinbeck writes as if he's writing a film script. What Did he want it to be made into film? The question of assonance, alliteration in poetry, all that becomes irrelevant. I think the weirdest thing, well, for, for me personally, is how you can almost live inside someone else's head. You can see the world through their lens. And yes, that's the sort of thing you'd write down in an essay. Oh, you're viewing it through the poet's lens from this perspective. But when you experience it, you really, really do. Yeah. You start to view the world in the exact same way that they view it. You see the things that they see, the the way they analyse things. And it's, it's, it's just incredible to see how some of the best poets, some of the best playwrights can just get that down so well on paper. Absolutely. And, and you begin to kind of fuse with it. Yeah. And I think that if you have that experience, Roland, that is so much, important, much more important than knowing anything about any of the technical features. That's interesting to be able to explain why you find it amazing. But the experience you're describing is deeply human, has always been the case. And it's wonderful to hear that it's, it's something that will continue. Is there also um, an itching to go back to acting? Are you ever at home in the bathroom in front of the mirror and you know a few lines of Shakespeare come out or something? Is there just a idiot that says, I'll go back for one more play? Yeah, well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, uh, Mr. Olinchik gave me, um, showed me a copy of uh, a book called The Lives of the Saints by Sebastian Barry. And it was a, a memory of a play that we did together. I, I think I mentioned it earlier, The, the Steward of Christendom with the great actor Donald McCann. And it's funny when you're reminded of a very intense experience from the past, it does awaken it inside you again. So I would have said that I wouldn't go back to acting in the sense that I'd left it uh, dormant for too long. But I have to say, I couldn't be 100% certain. Probably not the long theatrical runs, probably happy enough to play somebody's grandfather in a, in a, a three-day uh, three shoot or whatever. But um, I, I couldn't rule it out completely, let's put it that way. Would you get involved in press drama once you retire? Well, back so, maybe a rerun of Juno and the Peacock, perhaps? If somebody was to ask me, you'd never know. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, sir, um, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I think I speak for a lot of students when we say we'd be really, really sad to see you go. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast and sharing all those thoughts that you have on your career and taking us through your career as well. And you do have a poem to read for all our listeners as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to finish up with uh, a poem by uh, Thomas Kinsler, uh, which I studied in school with the great uh, teacher, English teacher here, Dan Donovan. And it's called Mirror in February. It's a poem, maybe about ageing, maybe about acceptance, maybe about a lot of things. I'll let you judge for yourselves, okay? It's called Mirror in February. The day dawns with scent of must and rain, of open soil, dark trees, dry bedroom air. Under the fading lamp, half-dressed, my brain idling on some compulsive fantasy, 
I towel my shaven jaw and stop and stare, riveted by a dark, exhausted eye, a dry, downturning mouth. It seems again that it is time to learn in this untiring, crumbling place of growth, to which, for the time being, I return. Now plainly in the mirror of my soul, I read that I have looked my last on youth, and little more, for they are not made whole that reach the age of Christ. Below my window, the awakening trees, hacked clean for better bearing, stand defaced, suffering their brute necessities. And how should the flesh not quail that span for span is mutilated more? In slow distaste, I fold my towel with what grace I can, not young and not renewable, but man. Well, sir, thank you very much for that and for coming on our podcast. And we will, of course, be sad to see you go, but thank you very much for all of that. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it too, Ronan. Thank you. Well, listeners, I've been Ronan McAuliffe. I've been joined by the fabulous Mr. Kieran Ahern. Thank you, as always, for listening as we close the book for the end of the year on season two. And we hope you'll join us next year again for season three of Radio Press. Thank you, as always. 